Welcome to Storytime with Tommy. I'm your host, Tommy Desmond, a licensed agent, licensed builder, and active real estate investor in Southeast Michigan. And there are a few things I like more than having some drinks with friends and talking about real estate. For the next hour or so, that is exactly what I intend to do. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do that at TommyDesmond.com. Now, allow me to channel my inner Alan Daniels for a minute and state that nothing in this podcast is intended as legal advice. And if you wish to apply an idea to your situation, that is on you, my friend. Seek appropriate legal counsel. I also wish to thank Jeremy Burgess, the founder of Renegade Detroit Investors, the producer of this and several other fine mall podcasts. Jeremy, tell us about RDI and how to get a hold of you. Hello, folks. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Or go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors. Subscribe and never miss a meeting. I'll see you guys there. And if you don't like it, he'll get all mad and start ranting. Very angry. He, he, he looks at numbers constantly. Why haven't you subscribed? He wants to know who the constant viewers and listeners are. He gets Why really haven't upset. you rated and reviewed yet? That's totally accurate. So tonight is the third of 16 episodes, and uh, I have with me one of the savages of the investment community in Metro Detroit. <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Josh Sterling from the truly epic Epic Property Management Group. Uh, Josh has amassed a portfolio of over 200 units of apartments and single-family properties, uh, primarily in the downriver communities of Wyandotte, Westland, and Southgate, correct? Trenton, Southgate, yeah. Wyandotte. All right. In addition to being the founder of Epic Property Management and a new father, he is also the party responsible for exposing me to private flying, an interest that I'm only beginning to grasp the expense of. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs> Hashtag not a fucking peasant. No, he's set a whole new bar for how much money I need to make and what I'm going to spend it all on. I didn't uh, anticipate. I can't wait to fly over poor people and judge them harshly. <laughs> and, and it's funny when you do. <laughs> so my other guest as part of this evening is uh, very, very close scotch to my heart. It's Aberlauer Abuna. It is a cast-strength single malt whiskey from the Aberlauer Distillery over in Scotland. Abuna means the origin in Scots Gaelic. Uh, it has no age statement, but they age it in Spanish sherry casks. It's a bit softer and sweeter than many of the other scotches. Uh, the story is pretty interesting, actually. Supposedly, some workmen found a time capsule back in 1975 when they were doing some work on the factory, and it contained a bottle from 1898 that was actually wrapped in a newspaper, which is how they got the dating. Um, and they finished almost the entire bottle while they were there because they pulled it out of a wall, and that's what you do when you're working on a property, which I have found alcohol in properties that we've rehabbed. I didn't drink it because it was just weird, but, you know, I don't know if it was in a it Scotch was an old distillery. <laughs> I might have, you know, if it was in the Aberlour distillery, but I found, uh, yeah, it was like blackberry brandy in a plastic tub from, you Yeah, know. I'm going to pass on that. Yeah, it's a little bit different, you know. Yeah. So... Anyway, this uh, particular bottle, the modern Abuna, was Aberlauer's attempt to recreate the bottle after they had what was left of it analyzed. Uh, and I got to say, I'm a fan of Sherry Cast Scotch, and this particular bottle is pretty much at the top of my list. Uh, recently, they raised the price of it in Michigan from about 80 bucks a bottle to around 110 to 120. So, I'm not gonna lie, that kind of you know makes me back up a little bit. I know it's not the most expensive dram on the block, but damn, you know, La Santa from Glenmorangie is really good, and that's 50 to 60 bucks a bottle. So, I mean, Aberlauer is better, but hell, you know, I drink a lot, so half the price means something. <laughs> and there's a point of diminishing returns at a certain level. So, uh, Josh, usually when we've hung out in the past, you're the designated pilot who stays stone sober so you can fly us around. <laughs> but when you are being debaucherous, what, uh, what does that look like for you? What do you drink? Are you a drinker? Uh, mostly beer, wines. I do not know much about whiskey. So, is that, is uh, that your Lake Tahoe in you? You have to be a beer man? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are you drinking today? What are you drinking? Got a... uh, today, just a glass of wine. Okay. A glass of what is it? You don't even know what wine uh, the house Pinot, I believe. Yeah. You said, bring me the dark wine. I'm I, drinking. I have I to go I also don't on. know much about wines. I <laughs> drink them. Is there, is there alcohol in it? I That's enough so, yeah. to know. <laughs> you know everything you need to. So anyway, the actual point of this uh, podcast, even though whiskey and drinking is somewhat of a component, is uh, real estate. So, I mean, the people who know you, people who don't know you, you're obviously a shooter in the arena here for metro detroit you've been doing this for how many years now uh seven eight years now all right so, so. i mean you've got a pretty good it's not a long period of time but that's a pretty solid portfolio to build up over seven years yeah the so. market's been uh, it's been kind to us and uh, we 
definitely got in at the right time, so I've got to give a little bit of credit to luck and market timing. You mean you're not a super genius? No, I am. Okay, all right. <laughs> Just, I'd rather be lucky than good. That's right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, that counts. Well, how many units are you up to, man? Uh, two hundred and six, I believe it is. Two hundred and six. Yeah, I was close. I knew it was there. over two hundred. I didn't know the exact number. Ah. And you have we something have under contract, right? We have a sixty-unit deal under contract as Boom. of uh, just earlier this week. So, uh, oh, no kidding. That'll help. And where's that? Down in Monroe. Okay. Nice. Baller. So you're spreading <laughs> it out then even further too. Uh, yeah, we've been uh, sticking to that. Uh, I'd still consider that the Downriver area. It, it is a little bit of a, a drive. We're within about 30 minutes of our office, though, at these properties. So definitely uh, feasible. We can still run our same model out of that. So do you have, I mean, what is your circumference? Because you've already got all your team and your infrastructure in place. How far does that reach right now? Right. So that's uh, that's really something we've tried to focus on is we'll manage properties up to about the Royal Oak, the 96 area, west over to Canton, Plymouth if we need to, and then south to Monroe. But once we get outside that area, that somewhat of a hands-on approach that we've had and the, the vendors that we're used to working with, uh, they're not going to venture out of there. And so it really limits the the quality of management we can do. So we we try to keep it tight knit. And um, the majority of what you're managing are your own units. You do have other people as well, but yeah, it's that, you know yours, the right? management company has really grown over the last uh, couple of years now. So we're managing about another hundred and it's probably another 120, 130. Oh damn! Uh, units on top of that, we're I didn't pretty selective. That it that we definitely will not manage just any unit, even in our area. Uh, but we uh, that that side of it's grown quite a bit. Well, you you rehab to a really high level for most of your properties. So is that something that you basically expect? You don't we, have any slumlord properties. We don't. We we definitely are rehabbing. We're definitely looking for that that top tier of property. I I, I believe it attracts a, a top tier of tenant, and it's the only thing that makes management even bearable. On uh, <laughs> otherwise, I don't know how how some people manage some of the the properties that you hear about out there. Um, so it, yes, you need a really high quality property, but you also need a at an owner who understands that it does take some money to put back into your property to maintain it because uh, you know property management you're basically a middleman you yeah. know, between the tenants and the owners and either side can destroy you and your reputation. So mm-hmm. it's really a, a balancing act and, and it just comes down to trying to do the right thing. Uh, if something needs repaired, something needs maintained, I believe it's the right thing to get that done, not to save a few bucks and neglect it. Fix it right the first time, and then you've got easier to deal with tenants who are happier, and they're more likely to pay rent. You have a higher quality overall. And and they don't leave, and turnover is what kills you. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you analyze any kind of numbers, uh, turnover is where it breaks you. So That's you the can, logistical problem is the turnover, exactly. right? Exactly. So I believe best possible management, best possible property to fair market rent, and you're going to give people no reason to move. Therefore, you actually minimize that turnover and increase your profit there. And so it's a little bit self-serving, but it's also a much better product to manage. Self-serving or not, it sounds like a solid model for everybody involved. So it's, I, I believe it's the only way to do it. Having gone the other way, I think I'm going to lean more Josh's way in the future. Because <laughs> he was talking about, I know exactly what he's talking about when he's talking about. I don't know how people do it. I look back and remember how we did it, and it's just a shit show, man. It's never again, never again. I'm I'm on your side now. So. Yeah, I've been pretty lucky in that most of mine we rehab to a high level. They're in fairly high profile areas, and the tenants that we get tend to be higher level. They're either you know white collar. We got a lot of engineers, a lot of nurses. I mean, these you know you got a couple engineers that are coming into your property and they're renting it. They're each one of them makes 150 a year. They're not worried about meeting rent and. Right. You know, they're, they're just, we've never had problems. We've never had, for any of our properties, anybody not pay rent on time. I mean, sometimes we have it five days early, you know, and that's, after listening to Jeremy's horror stories, you know, it I, seems very difficult for me what to. What did you do, Jeremy? Bought and rehabbed a shit ton of houses in Detroit. <laughs> First, we uh, went with the renting to the Section 8 model till we got our dick kicked in enough to tap out on that. That took about two years before you, you know, like, no more. Um, then we went to working people, which actually that worked pretty well um, for Detroit. Uh, but what really worked was the land contract model. Then they, you know, they came and changed that too. The land because contract they had model, ownership of the property, so, absolutely. Yeah. And three yeah. grand was the magic number. We tried two grand. Too many people defaulted. Three grand was for a, down payment. You're talking that was enough money that people didn't want to walk away. That's the magic number. The huh? magic number, and then keep the payment. Three grand Wait. is a down payment on the purchase of property because yeah. three grand is like not even our security. That's deposit. about yeah. I was gonna yeah. say about a security deposit. Hey, for Detroit, man, that's like two years tax returns, homeboy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so 
Wow. Uh, and then keep the payment, taxes and insurance, less than rent. That was key. So it was cheaper for them to pay for the house on a land contract. And three grand was the magic number. Sometimes we got five or six. We got like eight or 12 on a few. Uh, it was just cheaper that way. And that actually worked pretty well. So nice. I'm going to lean Josh's way, though, a little bit more now. Your way, too. That sounds... You know, well, it's, it's, you don't have the horror stories. Sometimes on paper, it's like, because I've thought about that. I mean, some of my properties, I mean, I've got, they're worth 250 grand and it's bringing in 1700 a month. And it's like, well, I mean, for that amount of money, like, I mean, I could buy three or four properties that'd be making 1200 a month each. And it, it does give you pause for thought. And then you look at your world when it's like, damn, you could be buying properties for 20,000 bucks and make yeah. 900 a month on it. But I think on paper, <laughs> it's probably a lot different than the reality of actually dealing with it, right? Yeah, you got to be a high risk individual, and uh, I don't recommend it and for well most people. I don't know about well tough. <laughs> I think Brent Maxwell had the best thing. You know, buy ten, get eight, maybe seven. <laughs> that needs to be your approach to Detroit real estate. You know, <laughs> so if you can't handle a swing like that, you know, you need to, you need well, to step like back. venture capital. Yeah, but you, know you do make a win shit ton of, of money. Yeah, just you have a lot of sleepless nights too. Yeah, yeah. No it thanks. I'm very done stressful. with that. They beat it out of me. I'm done. <laughs> no, it also doesn't sound like it's easily scalable. Like your model is much more scalable because you can add up and you have a fairly consistent return from that, right? We're definitely uh, over the last uh, five or so years, as much as I can track, we're running on average above 99% occupancy. So the wow. market's been been great, but I believe the model is part of what's causing that. No, do you? I mean, are you still? You still have evictions. You still have we do payment mainly. Right? You know where you really see what every time I buy a new apartment building, it proves my model right even more because we buy something that is just beat up that they haven't screened tenants on the way in. You have to do the purge um, when you initially the get purge. It. I mean, it's it can be bad, and that's where you get your horror stories. I mean, and and so we've had our share of them, you know, but. Most of the time, it's an inherited tenant. You know, the, the joke around our office is uh, whenever we have an event come up that's, you know, a little bit uh, uh, unpleasant, and it's someone we put in. It's like, all right, who is the one that approved this app? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have one office manager that gets to do all that, right? Yes, but the, our we've got it scaled enough now that our uh, even our receptionist can approve apps. It, it's it's pretty systematic on what we're doing. So the office manager will approve them, but we've got two or three people in the office that have the power and the ability and the the knowledge to do it as well. But they have a checklist that they run down. It's that's very systematic. Yeah, yeah. It's, and, and really, it's uh, if it ever gets a little bit fuzzy for them, then they will defer to the office manager. So okay, yeah. and that was a result of that's one of your pilot manuals that you made for the. Uh, Everything we do is, yeah, systematized, <laughs> checklist. Flying uh, with Josh, when you get into the plane, he's got these perfect checklists for everything, which makes everybody more comfortable. But <laughs> he, he goes through it, and I mean, this is a guy, I mean, you got, what do you got, 4,000 something hours in the, in the sky, right? Yeah, Flying yeah. massive planes, and you still run through the same checklist every single time. Yeah, and I still forget shit. And, well, I'd imagine <laughs> that, that process is the same thing that you're applying. It's right? the same idea, and, and yeah. it works really, really well. Everything we have is uh, from a turnover to, a new purchase to selling a property to screening a tenant. There's a checklist for everything. Hmm. So it works pretty well. No, oh, that's smart. Honestly, I need more of that myself. I probably need to implement it. So you're right and I'm wrong. Ditto. <laughs> Big fan of, uh, we use an app around our office called Wonderlist and it's a free app that anybody mm. could use. Uh, it's What's great about it is it can be shared amongst your team and the checklist can all be shared in there. And so if there's multiple parties to a checklist, Basically, we use a ball-in-your-court type of system. So the project manager checks off a task. Now the ball is in the office manager's court, and she will... So as soon as they bubble, check bubble, one of those bubble, off, does it bump over instant. to someone else's tab? They yeah. know what their list exactly. is? Exactly. The instant. You could check it off right now, and I'd have it cleared, and I'd know it's in my court. And now it's your problem. So And, and, it's, and then we ever have something bottleneck, and you can look and say, all right, where did that problem occur, and how do we resolve that bottleneck? The accountability breakdown. Yep. So it tends to work pretty well. Well... That's awesome. All right. Uh, another thing that you're into that's pretty interesting, and it's a little bit of a – I've heard this brought up by a lot of people in a lot of ways in the real estate investment world, and it only seems like half of them know what the hell they're talking about when they say it, and that is syndication. <laughs> so uh, you're, you've are you done a syndication, right? you got a yep, syndicated we, deal we going right now. We just completed our first one. Actually, I've got another one in the works right now. Okay. So. Can you explain syndication, what it is, just briefly? Sure. Just a general overview – it's essentially a sponsor or someone whom is leading the, the project and 
multiple passive investors. Uh, I have heard of, of people getting in, two people to a deal and calling it a syndication, but my belief is it's when you have multiple investors in a deal um, and each person has an equity ownership stake. So it's operating um, more like a security. Right. With the... With that, because it is so much like a security, there's a lot of legality in it. Um, because, as you know, you can't just go produce a security mm-hmm. and sell it. That's definitely is, is illegal. It, is there SEC oversight? So, there's all that? Et- so what you what you end up doing with a syndication is what's called a private placement memorandum, and what that does is basically exempt you. It's called a, a Regulation D, a Reg D exemption. And there's different classes under that. But basically, you're putting together this big, long, expensive. Uh, my last one was 140 some odd pages and uh, cost me well in excess of. I, actually, I got a decent deal on it. And it was about six grand mm. um, just for that document alone. Uh, oftentimes, it's 10, 12, or more. But we also we, we put some other parts together that that help that. But so that is all just so you can say that I don't need to comply with. Uh, the registration process. For and that, that's based on the idea that even though it operates like a security, it's not being traded. The shares are being kept with the same original people who right. buy in. I know this. I know that when you get to this level, it is attorneys. You hire attorneys to do this because it's way above my expertise. So that's what we do is we go to a, a syndicate, a, an attorney that will specialize in that. Basically. So that's what does that team look like that set that up for you? Like you find so, you find a property that you want to set up a syndication for. What was the next step? What did so, you lay out? Well, step one, really, before you even get to the syndication route is you have to have an awesome deal. It can't just be an okay. It can't even really be a single or even maybe a double is is pushing it. It's got to be a really, really good deal. Um, otherwise, there's not going to be enough meat on the bone to take some as the sponsor and also give your investors a, a fair return. That Anything that's worth while. them getting involved for. Exactly. So that is that's step number one. You've got to have you've got to have the deal there. Step number two is you've got to start raising that capital. And to do that, you have to have this PPM document, amongst other things. So before you even go to solicit them, this already has to be worked out ahead of time. Right. So before they can subscribe to the agreement, I should say. So basically, what you my, my last deal had a three prong approach. We had three different attorneys involved in the deal from all over the actually the country, really. Uh, two were in Michigan, one was in Colorado. And so the, the PPM um, attorneys that we used were out of Colorado. Great, great company for it. Um, and that's how we, we did it that way to save a few costs. Instead of paying that 12 or 14 or 15 grand that you can pay, we got it done for, we were probably all in for eight. The syndication, the PPM attorneys were about Is that because each attorney handled one particular right. component? So instead of, of just giving it all to one attorney, we found a, a less expensive way to accomplish the same thing. And then we had a local attorney that was writing the operating agreement, forming the, the entities because they were Michigan. You know, And you have to understand Michigan law for that. Mm-hmm. And then we had a whole separate attorney that handled the whole uh, purchase agreement side of things and the, the closing review and whatnot. So it was actually a lot of coordination and probably a lot more work to it that way. But it saves a fair amount of money on the front end, which starts helping your return happen even quicker. Uh, with any of these deals, there's going to be a little drag, even if you you aren't syndicating. When you say drag, you mean there's going to be you putting in with nothing coming back out? I mean, the first few months you start any kind of multifamily property, you're going to have that. Uh, you're going to have a little bit of dip in occupancy if you're if you're managing differently, whether that be better or worse. You know, uh, you're going to have uh, all the cost of closing that deal, of of forming the docs for that deal, of of attorney's fees, of accountant's fees, of all this, you're going to have all that hit you for the first few months, and it kind of drags the investment, the return down. Okay. So the, the less cost you can have in the acquisition, um, the better. And, and, you know, you can't avoid every cost in there. There's sometimes you got to spend money to, to make sure it's right. So now, when where are these properties at? Like with the actual apartment building, where is it sitting ownership-wise or through the closing process during which time you are getting investors together and putting this document <clears throat> together? You're just uh, you're under contract, basically, to close. So it's all in due diligence. It's, it's part of the due diligence Well, part. so, yeah, the, to get real specific on it, the uh, it starts with a, a letter of intent, right, that says, hey, do you want to dance? You go back and forth with the seller. I think it's so much more efficient than single-family stuff, mm-hmm. writing this 15-page offer. But you go back and forth with the letter of intent. Which is basically, you, hey, I want to buy a property. Want to buy your property. want to pay for it, but we have to do all this other shit first. Right. And basically, it's before you get to this expensive purchase agreement, right? And then you come to an agreement on a price. 
you get a purchase agreement signed by both parties, and that usually takes a good week, I'd say, in my experience, to get a purchase agreement put together, and then both parties review it, their attorneys review it. Once that's done, you have the day the seller signs is usually your effective date, uh, as spelled out in the agreement, and then you start what's called your due diligence period, which mm-hmm. is where you're doing any kind of research to find out what's wrong with the property, whether that be you know walkthroughs of every unit, uh, lease audits. I uh, thought you'd just get their pro forma and take everything that's in it as verbatim. I, and yeah, you, I just go off the pro fic every and, time. And you just say, this is the way it all is, and you buy it based on their <laughs> right? numbers, right? Right. Because, I mean, why would anybody you know sell a property that wasn't performing really well? <laughs> yeah, right? So... <laughs> So that's no. So that's you know you get through the due diligence, um, and then next step. And while you're doing that due diligence, at least for us, we're seeing that this deal is going to come together. So now I'm dumping all the effort into the the syndication portion, trying to raise the money at the same time. Once your due diligence period expires, now you're on the hook. You're you're at least you're committed for your earnest money deposit. And on these kind of deals, you're looking at anywhere from twenty five to maybe fifty grand. Yeah, you're not putting five hundred bucks down to buying a building. No, you're kind of committed. You know, yeah. plus you've got attorneys' fees and, and all kinds of other expenses in this, right? You've paid a bunch of people to come out and inspect roofs mm-hmm. and plum and you know boilers and plumbing and whatnot. And those inspections aren't the four hundred bucks for a single family house either. Those no, inspections are more you know complex. honestly on those a lot of times we can call in favors from our vendors in the yeah. area, but there's always a, a couple of expenses that creep up. And and a heck of a lot of time commitment. So if you value your time at anything. So then once that due diligence period expires, now you're in your financing contingency, which basically is where the bank is getting your loan docs ready to close. And that is typically another 30 or so days. Usually these things are slated to close in about a 60 to 75 day period. Okay. So um, in that period, that's when you're rounding up all the, the money and the syndication docs and getting subscription agreements in and so you're still, when you do this, just for clarification, you're still doing financing with the bank for the overall purchase price of the property, right. but the other, uh, the, the symbiotic investors that are part of the, syn- the syndication, they're just for the down payment cost and the startup money. Which is one of the beauties in it, because uh, there's really three still ways. still using debt leverage. You, you, you get yeah. use leverage, right? So there's three ways that you're making money with, with a syndication right off the bat. You've got your cash flow, like everybody understands. And like on my last deal, I'll give some real numbers. That was about uh, 8.2% where we penciled it in. Um, we're pretty conservative with that. So I believe we'll you know, pretty easily hit that. So we 8 point something percent cash flow was how it penciled out for the investor's share. Each each share got that um, annualized. Then you have your principal pay down. Um, that gets pretty aggressive. It's pr- amazing. I've, I've always loved principal pay down. You get a million plus dollar note. Our mm-hmm. last note was just over a million bucks um, at four and a quarter on a, on a 20 year am. Oh, I mean, God. that thing is paying down some principal. It was over 7% return just from principal pay down. And that is all but, I mean, if, as long as you make your mortgage payments, that is happening. Mm-hmm. So you're getting that. And then the last portion of it is value add. And that is the wild card. I mean, I don't know what, what value we're going to add. And so, that's by you effectively raising the management level of the property to make it higher performing. Specifically the NOI. You raise yeah. the NOI, the value of the building goes up. So Net operating income. <clears throat> yes. So you can raise that. And, and what I've always thought was amazing about the numbers on that is even if you can just raise top-line rents and keep expenses the same, it doesn't take much because every time you raise your top-line rents, let's say by by – ten dollars that like on this particular deal we're in every time we raise our top line rents by ten dollars that raises our noi by two percent well it's, it's multiplied out by all the units that you've got that right. are spreading across exactly and for people who don't necessarily understand how apartment units would get valued it's you know if you're if you're used to the single family world you're used to the comp value of property and that's not an accurate scenario for multifamily multifamily is generally valued based on the income that it produces and the higher that you can make the income based on the better the building the better it's managed the higher the rents that come in the higher the value of the property correct it's strictly just exactly it's just a mathematical formula yeah so so i mean that's dramatically different from the comparable model which a lot of people are used to so but you can see if you raise like you said you raise every single unit 10 bucks across 60 units you've had a dramatic impact on the net operating income right so and then that in effect raises the value of the property which is what now you're holding as an asset is that valuation for the property so you acquire it at one price just by you managing it more effectively it becomes worth a different number so now you've got a whole different platform that the property is valued on exactly well that's pretty awesome 
Uh, what is the goal for the affiliated investors? Uh, I mean, do they stay in the deal? Like, I mean, because there's a certain time limit. Uh, I mean, I, I saw the syndication when it came out, and I didn't have the money to get in on it, or else I would have, and I'm mad, but whatever. <laughs> um, but there was a timeline that <coughs> outlined your basically the, the pay down for a particular period of time, after yes. which time that return changed. How right. does that work, and what so, is the idea for them? Okay, so what... Any syndication, any deal where you've got multiple investors into it, you're going to have to, at some point, have an exit strategy. My exit strategy with everything I do myself is to hold it forever. You know, for, for <laughs> I think that's the years. opposite of an exit strategy. I think right. that's a stay-in well, strategy. At some point, I guess we all exit. But <laughs> we, well, we die. Alive, you, yeah. You've got the ride the capital gains to your grave strategy. Yeah, I, you know, at least my intention now is, or that or until property management drives me insane. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, that that's my plan. But with with multiple other investors in the deal, everybody's going to have some idea of when they want out of that deal. So what you typically see is a five year hold on one of these. At least you'll project your returns over a five year hold. The way we did this one was a little bit different. And I should say, at the end of that five year hold, there's going to be typically a sale, mm-hmm. um, and that's usually the you know plain and simple vanilla syndication. What I did when I was doing... A sale in that, not that the building doesn't necessarily be sold, but they might get bought back out of it. Most times the building will actually sell. Just the most simple method. Okay. So I, not being a fan of that strategy at all, I don't like selling anything. Even when we flip a house, I usually want to keep them at the end. Um, I, in that painful (laughs) period where I look back at our flips and we made good money on them, and then I, I hear an address and I'm like... That's the last money I'm ever going to make yep. from that awesome property. And so I get what, all depressed. What the model I've gone after, and uh, and I've done it on. I did it on the last syndication. It will be the same model in this one. We're just getting ready to put together here. But I've always made the most. Most of the time, the way I make money in real estate is by getting into it, improving the property, pulling my capital back out, and then continuing to own that property. Right by mm-hmm. pulling it back out by a refinance. You flip them to yourself. You flip them to yourself. So. But Which I is like the to... sexiest thing I've actually ever heard in my entire real estate career. <laughs> hey. I just want you to know that. So we've got a picture of you over our bed. It's kind of a weird thing. I didn't really want to tell you, but whatever. <laughs> he's he's burning himself. Jeremy's having Jeremy's issues. I got excited. You were supposed to tell people about that. <laughs> I guess the secret's out. So what we've done with this model, though, what, what I think is what it appealed to the investors that got in, and it filled up pretty quick, and I, I have to believe it's because of this, is... I wanted that same model for the investors that I've had. So I wanted to be able to put them in the deal and add value over a few years, probably more like a three to four year period, I would imagine, and then refinance the deal and pull that capital out. And then the investors will still, if they so choose, own the deal at their initial equity percentage. So Mm -hmm. basically, you get a bunch of your capital back out, you still own the deal. I think it's a pretty awesome. And when it. you're refining it, you're refining it now the higher value exactly. because you've raised the NOI exactly. property. So maybe you know, for exa- our, our last deal was a fifty thousand dollars minimum to get in. So let's say somebody put in a minimum, got in at fifty. We might refi them out. Let's say in a few years we refi the deal, and and if you owned in this case fifty thousand, got you eight point three three percent of the deal. You get eight point three three percent of those proceeds upon refi. That might be twenty twenty five grand. I mean, I don't know what it'll be because I don't know what the value will be in a few years. But it's their I equity chunk cashed out as money in they their get hand. that cashed out, basically a dividend. But they still, but they still own the property at the same share they had before. Which what's awesome about that is if you look at what your return does when you get half your money back or whatever you get back. I don't, you know, I don't know what that number will be. That really, really makes your return look good. So, so you're that's, still producing more with the same stake, and you got cash in hand. You're producing more with you know much less inv- invested. So yeah, now your return looks awesome. So that's my plan, and it also gives people if they want out, then there's a provision in there that either myself or other investors in the deal can buy them out. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it gives everyone I think some flexibility, but also a way to really, really hammer those returns. Now, in the event that something goes wrong, is there like a capital call scenario based on equity? How as does far that as uh, things go... If something goes south we're, we're losing or money, whatever, we need, we need capital. So There's a foundation problem. Something occurs. Right. So the way we try to counteract that is with reserves. So we run a, a pretty significant reserve account, and, and that's another reason you have a drag when you first start out. You've got to build up that, that reserve amount so that you can operate that building safely. You have a um, buffer, basically. You buffer it. You have a cash right, buffer. Right, because yeah. the last thing you want to be able to do is not make your mortgage payment. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it really goes back to square one. If you don't start with the right deal, you know, our, our deal we went into it was like almost a 1.7 DSCR. It's a debt service coverage ratio. Uh, 
that turns the banks on like it just turned you on. Uh, mm-hmm. They love that. That's uh, That means that you're covering your mortgage by 70% more than what the mortgage payment is. So you've so, got that much buffer. You've in, got a lot of buffer. Yeah. So that's where it starts, you know, and then you have a reserve. And that's now. before you've done any modifications or raised exactly. any rent. But where, you know, if, if you're a passive investor in the deal, what they really like is they're not liable for the mortgage. So I am. I'm liable for this entire mortgage, personally guaranteed. I mean, I'm on the hook. If this thing goes under, I'm going down for the million dollars. No, that's you mortgage. personally. It's not tied to the investment group. It's tied to first the property, but then okay. ultimately I've had to personally guarantee that. Okay. So the investors that are passive in the deal have not. So that's my big risk, which also, I mean, I'm rewarded for that. I have a very, very decent chunk of equity for that, yeah. um, but the investors are not. So their worst thing that could happen is they lose their full investment. Worst thing that could happen for me is I am liable for a $1,040,000 mortgage. And honestly, the likelihood of that is incredibly low. I mean, because basically, because there's still insurances and everything to be... Deadly. Right. So I, I mean, if I something mean, catastrophic this, happens to the property, that's absolute, covered. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're we're going the wrong way with this because this is we're talking absolute catastrophe. Yeah. This is not in the plans. Obviously, I mean, but it it is. And for the style scenario. of these units, it's not likely anyway because these are. Is we're not talking individual properties sitting in the middle of some particular market. This right. is large. Right. You know, sixty unit building. So it's a different game. We could probably run this thing. I think at at forty to fifty percent occupancy and still make the payments every month. Hmm. So I don't want, intend to do that, but <laughs> I, well, I mean, you're at 99 on average right now. Right, we actually is, just hit. Believe it, or, yeah, we just hit 100 percent on this new building as well. Oh. So we're uh, that's my favorite thing because as soon as you hit 100 percent occupancy, then rents start going up. Yeah, and that's how you get the uh, well, because then you got an in demand property that people want to get into. Exactly. And you get afford to be picky because yep. you're not scraping to get anybody you can into units. Yep, exactly. So, so how did I you find this real quick? Sorry, go ahead. How how do you determine what the buffer is? What your buffer is? Is it a percentage of net as far as reserves income? or yeah. what? What's yeah. your reserve? Uh, for me, and I've always run my portfolio this way. I don't know if this is conventional or not, but I've picked a number where I felt like, okay, I'll use a single family house for example. I feel like there's nothing that can go wrong on a single family house that can cost you more than five grand, generally speaking. Yeah. I, I feel mean, pretty like safe. A roof, that that's a, a furnace outside of that. I mean, right. it's not Again, likely. A sewer line, you know. Anything nothing, bigger than that's going to be insurance You're going to see anyway. it coming, right? That's yeah. my belief. So whether that's right or wrong, that's how we do it. So on, Within a particular <clears throat> size and price bracket. So on a apartment building like this, I, I just make a general assumption of, okay, what is the worst thing that can go wrong here and how much can that cost me? In this particular deal, I felt like it was about a $20,000 reserve would be com- would make me feel comfortable. So that's what we built up. Okay. Um, so it's on, it's on a deal-by-deal basis. That's, and that would right. be like a, a boiler or a major electric mechanical right. we actually don't have boilers. Or that's whatever the unit makes is. it easier, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, a roof or a, uh, you know, something... I guess that you didn't expect you would have to do, and you go do it. You know, you should see a roof coming. City makes you tear up the parking lot because new something, mayor yeah. or some shit like right. that. You know, yeah. and this was an easy deal. Had it, I mean, there was little capex to put in. The, the parking lot was already done that this year. The uh, units were a one hundred percent updated. Uh, I mean, there's really not much that could go bad. Um, we did have a bunch of HVAC issues, which we had the reserve no problem to cover. Actually, we covered that from cash flow. So, you know, it's. I don't think there's too much more. I'm not a big fan of holding a huge amount of money in reserves. Um, We also have options because we had so much room in the deal that uh, we can get a line of credit for the deal, you know, a second on it or or whatever. You got backups for your backups. Right, exactly. I like your approach to it. Sorry to interrupt, Tommy. I was just no, curious about no, that. It's, I want that information, too. Now, this one particularly, you said it was imperative that the deal be this meaty. Now, how did you find this deal? I know as the running, everybody wants a multifamily yeah. property. Now, how did you find this particular deal? So the only way that I have ever bought, and I've bought multiple apartment buildings prior to this, and the only way that we ever buy an apartment building, every single one I've ever bought has been the same, we either get first look at the deal or it's completely off market. So most of the time for me, because I don't have the systems in place to be out direct mailing apartment yeah. owners and whatnot, I wish I did. Um, well, you'd, be me, com- you'd be competing with all those commercial guys anyway, and 90% of their deals are off market right. anyway. Right, and so what I, I feel the same way. Just like I don't wholesale myself. I, I would love that, that influx of single-family deals as well, but I don't have the time or the resources to do it. It's not my core business, so I just let the experts do it, and I buy it from them and let them make money. So the experts at getting apartment building deals is our commercial brokers. So what I've found to be the way to get a good deal is to get in 
very, very tight with a commercial broker. So we really have, honestly, two that I feel like we are their go-to guy. There is another guy or two that they'll throw us a deal here and there, but I'm not their first go-to guy. But there are two guys that if it's in our general market or even in a market they think we might get into, they're coming to us. And they're coming to us. We're getting first look at that deal. And we're not competing with all the other buyers. And that might sound weird. If you're the seller, you want to make sure that this goes to everybody. But you, what you got to remember is... This is specialty property. It's Well, that and it's all about closing the deal. So Can now you're you getting get into done? this deal. If, if you hit the, the, the market with this deal, you get this thing on LoopNet and Joe Blow Buyer comes along and he has no clue how to get this done. And he gets... You're tying this property up for. You can have thirty offers from days. people who can't actually. This buy guy it. doesn't close on that deal. Now you've got to start all over from square one. Yeah. So you combine that with the fact that the broker only gets paid if this deal closes. He is just like an agent, you know. I mean, he has every incentive in the world to collect his. You know, usually it's a hundred plus thousand dollar commission check. So he wants it to go to a buyer that he knows is going to close, and and. One more thing on that is he wants it to go to a buyer that he knows is not going to what they call retrade in due diligence. So mm. as a buyer, once you're under the due diligence period, if you start finding a few little things wrong, you can go back to the seller and start renegotiating. And there are guys that that's their business model. But if you can imagine, the sellers hate it because you've got them by the balls. The brokers hate it because the deal's on the edge of falling apart. So it's it's kind of a manipulative way to do it. So I've found that brokers don't like to sell to guys that do that. And the broker, the broker is the first one that people try to cut out too. Once you get all the lawyers involved in these kind of deals, the broker is always sitting out there like he might get cut out of this thing. So the the idea of, I mean, if, honestly, a, a commercial deal can take a year and a half to close in some cases. It's not like a regular single family deal that's just done in a couple weeks. So if you've got to potentially tie up a property for months and months on end during these elaborate due diligence periods, I, I mean, in me as an agent in that position would want to make sure that the person that we're picking is high, very highly likely going to close it so no one's wasting any of the right. time. Right, and even we're in them for usually you know, 60 to 90 days, somewhere in that range, mm-hmm. but that's a long time to tie up that's a property a and then start over. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's been where we found the deals, is by letting these brokers know that we're, we say we're going to close this deal, we're going to close it. And I've found stuff in due diligence before that I'll eat it, because it's much cheaper to me to eat a $10,000 surprise than it is to not get first look at that next deal. Yeah. Right? That might save me three or $400,000. So yeah. I'm willing to, to give a little bit here to get a little lot more later. As long as it still is a profitable, useful deal. Sure. And yeah. a lot of times, it's you know, you'll know you find little things that pop up. I mean, even on this deal, there was a very good deal we just closed. We found a few little things with the HVAC units that we knew would be individual units that we knew were going to have issues just the way they were generally maintained. And sure enough, we did. Um, you know, and, and, but we can work through that overall, the deal was totally viable still. And it gave us even a more solid relationship with that broker. What do you know? Two months later, first look at the next building, 60 Mm. units. So that's, that's how that works. Oh, I mean, it's a relationship game. That makes sense. Well, just like a wholesaler, you can train us to come back to you time and time again, just like a dog. Oh yeah. Everybody's like, why don't you send it to me? Uh, You're an unknown entity. And for all I know, you're going to ass clown this up and then you're going to do an inspection. You're going to try and kill the deal. Or I could just go to Josh and Tommy and get it done on a signature. Right. There you go. I'm sure I might make more, or I might not. Right. You might. You you can make three percent and nothing. There you go. Right. <laughs> you know. It was like I think I squeeze another ten grand out of this. You know. <laughs> Two weeks later, you come back begging. Yeah. I never want to be that. I never yep. want to be that guy. Come back. Well, would you reconsider your offer? I yep. figure if somebody does that to me, like. I got him on just on general principle, right? Yeah. I, I believe it or not, just had that happen to me uh, not too long ago that uh, we did not get uh, our offer chosen. And then three days before closing, it came back to us and they said, hey, would you uh, still be interested? And by the way, can you close Friday? Uh, for Ooh. a very different price. I'm not as uh, I sh- I wasn't. It's a good buddy, so I wasn't uh, I wasn't hardcore about it. But if it was anybody else, I would have said no. <laughs> That's true. If you're in my top ten people, I might not. But depends on your credit. <laughs> depends on your credit. Yeah. Your, your personal relationship credit. Absolutely right. <laughs> I better believe it's a one off and not like you were trying to milk your me operating for money. paradigm. Yeah. So did you hunt for this as a syndication, or did you find a deal and then decide, hey? 
maybe I could turn this into a syndication. Like, were you Most hunting? definitely. Find, I mean, found the deal. You've got the deal is what makes it everything. And then you saw the meat on it, and you're like, this is something we can make into this, a syndication. This could be a great syndication. Just had a lot of meat on it. I knew it had good potential, and so this was the one. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's a mildly obscure topic, though. So you had to already be researching this and knowing it was something you I were understood to generally. Do. I mean, there, I learned a lot. I'll still learn a lot on the next one, too. Um, I, I'm sure there's, I definitely do not know at all. Um, I defer a lot to people who are smarter than me that, that, you know, come into the deal and that we pay to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the general idea down and it filled up very quick. We filled it up once we had the, they call it uh, part of the PPM is the subscription agreement. Once we had that out, it filled up in less than 24 hours. The so subscription is the, the other investors coming in? The subscription is, hey, I've told you this was coming out. Here's the PPM. Are you in or out? Um, and a lot of times that's when you'll find the rubber meets the road, right? You send this in, you also need to send in your check. And so it, it, it went quick, uh, mm. which is really good. I know. I know it went quick. <laughs> how much did you – do you mind sharing how much sure. you had to raise in the 24 hours? It yeah, we were, well, I mean, I had more than that. It just it happened that quick. It wasn't a frightening quick. number. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was yeah we, we raised 300 grand for it. In 24. So you find so, the deal. Hey, you get the now, money, right? Well, I mean, okay, now – It's the beauty you know, of debt leverage. That's a little <laughs> misleading because I didn't quite just call out and in 24 hours it was raised. But I had primed the deal to these people and then I said, here's the – Here's the agreement you want in. And it was, you know, a day or so, a day and a half, you know, somewhere in there. And we had everybody committed. I'm in. And it was 300 so. spread across multiple uh, people. If I remember, it was yeah. 50 minimum, It was right? 50 minimum. And, uh, yeah, we had um, one person almost right off the bat took two shares. And then the last guy almost didn't get in because he wanted more. It, he was a, you know, that's a small number to some people. And he basically said, this is not really it's worth not my worth while. Yeah. Uh, if I can't get in for several shares, then I don't want in. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll go have to find somebody new. And then he said, all right, I'll do it, but make sure on the next one that, you know. <laughs> Fine. Next one, I get a more meteor chunk. And he will, and I will go to him right away. In fact, my, my deal, I'm getting together right now. I mean, we're, we're in the embassy of this. It'll, I don't know how long these take to come out, these podcasts, but. Uh, a week. I've, Okay. Well, by next week, I should have this out to the investors, but uh, it's that soon in the process, but it'll go to these people in this deal first. I think it's the only right way to do it. And then I got to raise a little bit more for this one, so there'll probably be some more room. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. awesome. I like your your approach to leaving enough on the bone for everybody to get a piece. I feel like we get a lot of advice in the investor world. There's like two schools of thought. Just... Do the Trump style, just beat the fuck out of everybody <laughs> for every penny. Uh, use bankruptcies, negotiate, you know, beat up small guys, all that, and just crush competition. And then there's like this way you're talking about, which is make sure everybody gets a chunk of money and it all makes sense for everybody. I feel like the the biggest barrier to doing larger deals, I'm talking in the hundreds of units, you know, thousands of units, these big, big buildings you see out there, those are, I'm sure, all syndications or, or all. Those are all pools of money. It's not one guy with a bunch of cash doing mm. this, right? And I think the biggest barrier to the mental block, at least for me doing that, would be knowing where the funds are going to come from, even for the downstroke there. So my logic is, as long as I make sure everybody in these deals that we're in now does very, very well. Um, You're building your own capital pool. These returns, <laughs> now I have this capital pool that I don't have to worry about for that next deal that comes yeah. along. And so it's a little, you know, maybe it's self-serving, I guess, but everybody wins at the same time. Oh, well, mutually I like it. beneficial and self-serving don't have go. to be There different. you go. I mean, they're, <laughs> mutually they're, beneficial. Yeah. It is. Well, I mean, right? I mean, so, I mean, they, they wouldn't put the money back in if they weren't getting the capital. They wouldn't have the capital if it wasn't coming back out of the deal. Right. I've had a lot of people, just today I got into a Facebook fight for no particular reason with some random person in California because the whole premise was they were very focused on what happens on the other agent's side of the deal. Well, if you're making X amount, the other agent's making X amount, you know, and they were just very hung up on the idea of how much the other side was getting. And honestly, I don't really pay all that much attention to what the other side's getting. As long as my side's lean and good, you know, like I'm doing all right on my side, does it really matter how much the other side's doing? I mean, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It seems like there's... It seems like a very poverty mindset to focus on how you can maximize every tiny thing you get out, and then all the other people are just getting scraps out of the deals you do. Right. It's just kind of like, I mean, how long would that relationship go? <laughs> it's, I know it's I have too uh, limiting. I have uh, tradesmen, you know, that will come and do properties for me, and I know that they're, you know, not giving me the lowest price on the block, but they're very good tradesmen, and I know that I can 
you know, if I leaned on them, they would give me lower numbers. However, how often can you do that before all of a sudden they're less interested in answering your phone calls? Because, yeah, I know you got more work for me, but how much of Tommy's work do I want to do? Because every single time I do his work, he beats me up. So I've got a lot of bad deals. Doesn't seem as good it, as doing a few really good deals. It works that way with wholesalers, too, I've noticed. If you ever buy a deal from a wholesaler and let's say they do really well in your market, uh, for us, I feel like there's a shortage of wholesalers in our market. That well, side. real so effective wholesalers. If any wholesalers, wholesalers are out here listening, yeah. come market downriver, please. Um, but <laughs> what happens? It happens all the time when the, when you buy a deal from a wholesaler that he does very well on it, he or she does very well on it. What do they do? They put that money right back into marketing down there and bring you another deal. So it's great. But if you're concerned about what they're making, how on much that they deal, made, then you're really just limiting your next deal. Yeah, because honestly, they're going to take, say they make 10 grand, they're going to eat five of it and they're going to put five into marketing because, right. wow, that worked really well. All of a sudden, they're going to bring you the more, the, the deals that come same, out of that five. Same concept, same with, you know, multifamily, same with syndications and everything. It's as long as there's enough on the bone that, that people do well, they're going to come back and want to participate again. And that's perfect. No, that definitely makes sense. Now, as far as your management company is concerned, how does that, in the structure of the syndication, how does because I mean you and Epic did Epic buy this property? No, we bought this as a newly formed entity. Okay, so um, we branded all of our apartments under the Huron River Apartments. So okay, Huron River. This is Huron River Newport. Um, okay, we have a wind out. We have a Rockwood. Whatnot. Fancy. Uh, it all it is. It's uh, it's actually kind of like that Warren Buffett thing. You know, his he's mm-hmm. Berkshire Hathaway, right? Yeah. Um, our first apartment building we bought was the Huron River Rockwood Huron River Apartments in Rockwood. So we just. I don't yeah. Know. Why? Why reinvent the wheel? It worked. So it's I all kinda, arbitrary now, anyway, right? Now I like it. So now we're gonna have here on rivers everywhere. <laughs> it's, got, it's grown on me. It's grown um, on me. So the entity owns the deal, and that's the investors are all members of the entity. Um, and our Epic Property Management just has the contract to now. Granted, it's the sole contract to manage the property. So. The entity pays Epic Property Management every month, the same rate that I pay from all my other properties, and then we go in and manage that property. It's actually, and I can get under the whole property management thing, but the way we operate, it's a non, it's basically like a not for profit. <laughs> we haven't made money ever as as a management company. Mm-hmm. I think we we just have too expensive of a model. We have a very very high payroll. We have uh, now two project managers on staff. We have you know. Hours, seven days a week, you know, most of the day, you know, we're open, you know, even Sundays, we're open at 7 p.m. still. It's like we have this very, very labor intensive model, which I also believe is the only way we can provide the service we provide, but it costs a lot of money to do that. So it's not a very profitable thing. I was never in it for profit. I was in the property management side of things because I knew it would build scale. It's a logistical facilitator for you. It's not the business. So really, you know, we had to manage our own properties, right? And and I realized that I couldn't do it myself forever. So we started hiring people. And then I realized, hey, I've got all these systems and all these people in place. Why not just have more work for them of the same exact style? So we just manage the properties we manage the same as we would manage our own, which it turns out a lot of people like that. Um, and so that's been the model the whole time. And you look at the big guys like the Princeton Investments or I'm sure the Amber guys, they're going to have in-house management every single time mm-hmm. because I feel that you need to be able to control that. And we might tweak the most minor detail, the way we answer the phone or the way we tell someone what they need to bring to a showing. But I have the power to do that. And it just takes our professionalism to the whole next level. So that, for that reason, we're in property management. So, and that only works because, unlike a lot of property managers, the vast majority of your portfolio is something you you own these properties. Right at this point, you know, and and I don't know what will outpace what. I'll tell you what the uh, we're adding units pretty fast. We've added uh, between seventy and ninety units a year for the last three years running now. So I think that's a pretty good clip. But we're yeah, I'd say <laughs> you know we we started off kind of slow and then we started getting momentum and it just kind of took off. So it uh, but. We've also added a lot of units under management. So if we took everybody that came in the door, I would outclip our portfolio growth in no time, I think. Um, as long as we're managing the kinds of properties and that the owners that we manage for have an understanding of our philosophies, then it's a very nice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you build scale. So, 
Yeah, you turn away a lot of property management we, business, right? You just like, no, yeah, your house is not nice enough. It's in we a turn shit away more than I. Maybe we turn away more than we should, but you know, I. For me, it's it's reputation. So if I get into a, a management agreement with someone, and either they aren't the type of owner who is willing to let me make the repairs necessary to make the property right for the tenant, or we get into a, a property where we're not going to attract the quality of tenant that we're accustomed to. Our reputation is going to start taking hits. The owner is going to be upset with us or the tenants are going to think we're terrible. And when that reputation starts taking hits, you know, I can stand losing money, but we, I can't stand losing any reputation. So there's an excellent lesson right there, well, yeah. especially for as much time, energy and effort has been put into this. Yeah, right. We've worked we worked too hard and we put too much in to to build this to what it is to have some junky property, the owner's pissed that we're doing repairs that we shouldn't or he doesn't believe we should. The For very mad, minimal amounts of return. Right. And and we literally break even on it. So yeah, there's uh you know, we're not for everybody. And I, I'll tell people that up front, you know, but the guys that understand what we're doing and our model, I think they're pretty happy with what we do. But you do come out to Royal Oak, right? We do. We'll go to Royal Oak, yeah. It's good to know. Yeah. Nice houses. Rehab nicely. Yeah. yeah. We actually have a couple in Royal Oak that we manage now. Well, you're about to get a couple more because I'm done with this shit. And I've been waiting for you to cross over the divide. Yeah. <laughs> That's about the as far north as we can go. You know, one of these days we may scale it into another market, you know, but I think it takes a real big jump to get there. We really need a lot of units in, in a certain area to make that jump because what's made us successful is that boots on the ground, that approach. That, that having that project manager that can go look at a job instead of just send a tradesman out. Having, you know, a receptionist sitting at a desk who understands the, that you need to send a handyman, not a plumber. I mean, these are minor little details, but these affect an owner's return a lot. Especially when they scale up. I mean, it might seem right. like a little thing when you've got a dozen properties, but that decision to send a handyman instead of a plumber when you've got 350 units under management, I mean, multiplied out. 200 times that's a big phone call right. i mean that, right. that, that, that's a major impact so <clears throat> about this property management company again so when did you start or when did you have you always managed your own property or when did you realize i just have to if i'm going to scale right um i managed my own properties by myself or with my wife's help you know here and there when she could while working full-time up till just about 50 units, maybe 48 or 50 units, which was stupid. Don't ever. That That's was, insane. That was dude. terrible. It That's was a, brutal. <laughs> yeah, that was only because I had this like control freak mentality and it helped nobody. Nobody won at that game. Um, and then we got in. I had this realization. I, you know, at the time I had a pretty good job and, and I'm this like, is while you're working full time. Yeah, I was working yeah. full time too. It was totally stupid. Um, you're, a, you're a sicko. But I, I realized I go. I have this wonderful job, and I've created this monster where I cannot even take a vacation without phone or internet. That is out of the question. Like, what have I done? I didn't have to do this. I could just go to work every day and come on and watch cartoons, you know, or whatever. <laughs> people, I don't know. So, so I'm like, all is right. That, is that your off time hobby? No, I don't even have TV. You don't have enough time. No. You and me both, buddy. You ain't, you ain't got time for that. <laughs> but so I, I realized, all right, to scale this, we're going to need to put some some people in place. And once I got over that initial jump, one of the better decisions I've ever made is starting to uh, starting to put people in place and let, let other people do the job. And guess what? A lot of them are better at the area they work in than I ever could be. Well, you know, I you made a good out, hire. I went out to try to train a new showing agent. It's been a few months now, but... I didn't even know what to say anymore. I mean, I was fumbling through this, uh, whereas our other showing agents, they can roll right off the tongue. <laughs> so people can, it's amazing what people can do if you well, give them the right Well, it's not their tools. everyday skill set. I mean, they right. also, the same person who's going to be an expert at that particular job is not going to be the one that's going to set up a, a syndication deal. Right. So, no, I mean, it definitely makes sense. Well, you could have just hired another property management company. Did you ever look at that? I looked very hard at hiring that, but I was a little bit gun-shy because at the time we had just purchased a 24-unit building at 42% occupancy Ooh. managed by the big property ah. management company in the area. So I thought, yeah, I don't I don't think that's, that's a right. that's a, an addiction of that property management right. company's ability. I knew to who they are too, and I don't like them. I'm not going to say, but I don't yeah, like them at all. I mean, they're the bar is set pretty low. You know, there's there's been a couple of good companies popping up lately, is my understanding. But uh, definitely back at that time, I don't know if it was what the market had been doing for a few years, but it must have flushed some of the good ones out because my choices were pretty much non-existent. Well, property management isn't, first of all, it's thankless work, right? It's, I mean, it's just yes. absolutely yes. thankless. And 
Talk about a shit job, really. Yes, right? I agree. I don't yeah. want to manage proper. I, if you can find me a management company that can do the level of provide the level <laughs> of service we're used to, you can have 320 units right now. I, I don't think make it's money an impossibility it, I, unless you've got the equity in the properties as well, because yeah. you, you're not investing. It takes a certain yeah. It, you're it just getting the game, and the profit is coming outside of you said it. It's breaking even. Right. Who would do right. all that? It's to actually, break actually even? we we uh, we did have our first. Month. This is funny. We had our first month ever in January last month where we made money, but that was because the way the paydays fell, there was only four instead of five. <laughs> so if we have five paydays, we can't make money. Just kidding. Yeah. But we're getting. I mean, so it, it's actually been a, a pretty big net loss up until it's getting better. But you know, it, well, in your model, that's actually probably tax advantageous anyway, right? Probably, yeah. So I mean, I mean and, and you know what? As it scales, you would think, oh, well, we just add more units, and now this thing will be profitable. It actually won't because to keep that same level of service, I've got to add more employees. I've got to add more overhead. So it's just this like seesaw. That, you know, that it's, you're not even actually climbing the stairs. It's just like a. <laughs> <laughs> you're riding the wave. You're surfing. Up, down. That's funny. So it's basically this is just something you needed to do to secure all your growth in the future. Right. And you decide, you know what? I'm going to bring it in house. I'm just going to do it. I control the quality. This right. is going to help me grow. I'm just going to eat it. Until I don't have to anymore. Pretty much. That's it. That was the uh, mentality. So what year did you actually open Epic Property Management? We opened in 2013. I would say late 2013. Very slowly. I mean, I didn't know anything about being a property manager. So we we were managing. Gosh, at that time, I was probably at, you know, 50-something, 60 units, you know, whatever we were at. Um, and then we started picking up steam um and so since then it's been that's it that's really been growing quicker than our portfolio i'm sure mm. uh, it's been and, and now you got fancy trucks with branding on them we do i love that that little ford transit and we're actually uh <laughs> does look good a little they're cool right it's like I free advertising cool. way cool yeah. i'm jealous <laughs> yeah. we've got another one coming online here shortly and uh i think we're gonna do another little uh like car for a leasing agent just get the stickers and the uh decals put on it it's uh it's, it's just nice. another write-off might right? as well right we actually get a lot of business we get a lot of phone calls off that people see us at parked at properties or driving down the road really? and, yeah it's cool well, i guess it's the equivalent of a sign right yeah I mean, pretty much a moving sign you see yeah. trucks moving around with signs on them so dude i love it i love that you had you thinking that far ahead too because that's one thing that as much as i love investors let's face it most of us can be pretty short-sighted <laughs> when it comes to profit right <laughs> thinking in terms of quarters of years yeah. and you're like i'm gonna lose money on this property mansion for a long time but i'm gonna make it up on the acquisition and the cash flow side right and i'm gonna come out way ahead Fast forward three years, and now you're over 200 units and chugging along. Well, and it's not just that. It's unit expectation, too, because, I mean, you've sure. got some oh, ambitious goals. I have no intention goals. of stopping this at, yeah, two or three, 400 you units. Want, you now. want five figures worth of units. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see this. Otherwise, why get into it is my I, mentality. So. I 100% agree with that. Uh, until I have 10,000 units, I'm not quitting. Right. Is there yeah. a number? Is I there... probably Well, my number was 30. 30,000? No, 30 units. 30 that units? That was my goal. It was the initial. <laughs> that was my, yeah, and then it just kept, like, I don't even, I'm not I'm not a good goal setter. I'm the worst at that. Well, I probably, last, uh, last time we went to Put-in-Bay, you had some pretty lofty goals, and they were in the five figures of units. I, I feel like if you're not above 10,000 units, that's why why even do it, you know, for I me. Agree I with that. That sounds probably a little bit ridiculous. I don't but, think it sounds ridiculous. But I see the... You know the look how many units are out there. Look, I mean, everybody's living in houses. Right. It's not an undue number whatsoever. It's ha- people are doing. And it. I don't know. It got you know to that point. I'm sure that you would want to keep going. I actually just kind of like the the game of it now. It's not even. It's not anymore really a, a dollar amount for me or anything like that. It's more of just I, I like the growth and I like the service that we're the art of the deal. It is. It's just the art of it. So, dude, that's awesome. No, I just like how far you're thinking ahead. It's that's why I like to hang out with you. Because yeah. sometimes, hey, I'm human like everybody else, right? Oh, yeah. This is why we got the pictures of you in our bedrooms. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly. 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 Tommy's Photoshop hey. skills came in handy. Hey, I got, I got it from you. <laughs> that, He's running them off. That's not true. <laughs> you can't prove that. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it, Josh. This has been uh, very enlightening. And, uh, I mean, I... 
am still very bitter that I'm not a part of this syndication deal because I was tied up and I couldn't, and damn it. But mm. I'm uh, there will be more. I'm looking forward to the next opportunity, and I uh, appreciate you giving all of your massive insights. Um, Jeremy, why don't you take us out and tell everybody that they're supposed to subscribe and do all the things you do. All right, folks. First off, takes a lot of time out of Tommy and Josh's day. If you enjoy listening to this stuff in this podcast, first go on to iTunes, rate and review. Also, share this podcast. And if you wouldn't mind sharing it from either Tommy or my or Josh's page, because we can see you sharing it, and then we can thank you. And otherwise, just share it out there. Uh, I want to thank Secretos, Ronnie at Secretos. Go to SecretoCigarVault.com. This Very is cool on venue here. West Nine Mile in Ferndale. Very gracious host. It's a whiskey and cigar bar. They let us do our podcast here. I'm drinking, I'm drinking a coffee. Had a good coffee. They had scotch and wine. I'm smoking a nice cigar. Also, go to TommyDesmond.com for all things Tommy. Also, go to OaklandCountyInvestors.com for everything else like that. And, of course, if you want to hook up with Josh, go to EpicPropertyManagement.com. You can send him a message right through there. We also really appreciate your attention. We know you can be doing lots of other things. Until the next podcast, crush it.